preparatory announcements. I want you to think of it. Remember on the news when you've seen a, a shot from space, a picture of the earth from space, and you look down at this blue sphere that's kind of just suspended on its own, rotating around the sun, and <clears throat> it looks all well from a distance. But then if, if you zoom in on a macro level, you look at the countries and you go, man, there's what's going on in North Korea or what's going on in Iran or what's going on between Russia and, and, and the surrounding nations? And you look at the weather and you go, what's going on? I mean, people are dying in tsunamis and earthquakes. You look at politics and you zoom in on a political debate and you go, what's going on? Right? And you look at this earth at a macro level and you go, it seems like it's out of control, that, that history has lost its way. And then on a, on a micro level, you zoom, zoom in on, on churches and families and individuals. We have here two families that have lost loved ones this week. One, a, a family friend there, this isn't their home church, but this um, gentleman, Bill, went to be with the Lord um, after suffering for years from a degenerating illness, and, as, and he's young. He's, he's really young, like my age. And, um, and then most of you heard that uh, our own Jesse Abraham, very suddenly, out of just no rhyme or reason, um, passed away this week as well. And we, and we try to make sense of that, and we say, God, what, what, what is going on? Have, have, you, have you turned your back on the planet? And um, we're kind of left speechless. And that's why we go back to the Bible, because there we have God's interpretive reminder that he's in control of history. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that will be helpful. I do want to make an announcement, though, concerning uh, Jesse's funeral that will be here on Wednesday. Um, the announcement that went out, um, there are some slight changes. So, Nine o'clock this Wednesday will be uh, open viewing from 9 to 9.45, and then the service will be at 10 o'clock here at the church on Wednesday morning. So be in prayer for them and um, the children. They're here this morning, and we welcome them and their family and friends, as well as the Gill family who's here. We want to be praying for them. But if you'll turn in your Bibles now, thank God that we're not left to try to figure out what's going on. God has given us his word, and we're going to look at a passage that, that <clears throat> looks down and interprets what, what many people call salvation history. And I want you to think of it this way. When God created the earth, <clears throat> he had a very specific plan and purpose for people, groups, and individuals. And before the foundation of the world, he, he planned that Adam and Eve would fall in sin. It wasn't his fault, but it was part of his plan he planned that Satan would rebel. He planned that Christ would come and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And he planned to call people to himself. The Bible says he, he elected people before the foundation of the world. The Bible says the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. But I want you to think back in the history of planet Earth. Now, maybe you grew up being taught that we just kind of evolved. Uh, there was a big explosion and this round sphere called Earth just happened by purposeless, random chance, which is pretty hard to swallow, you know. When I was a kid and I blew things up, nothing ever came down. Now, you're like, what did you blow up? I'm talking about firecrackers, and you know, I didn't have dynamite, but nothing came uh, in a perfect sphere, and it didn't hang in space and suspend around the sun at a perfect distance. So there's a lot of evidence that there's an intelligent designer. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if you've read the Bible, and 
I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I already know the Bible. And then when I start talking to them, I'm like, no, you don't. So just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you know what the Bible says. And I really want to encourage you. If you're all mixed up about how to get to heaven and what the Bible teaches, read it again. Read it with a humble heart and ask God, show me the way. The Bible points us to Christ. But the Bible tells a story that, that, that earth is a drama stage. A drama stage with an invisible audience of angels and demons that are engaged in a, in a conflict down here on earth. And that when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought catastrophic consequences. People are born in rebellion against their creator. And most of the 7 billion people prancing on this planet have no regard for the true and only living God. But in his mercy, rather than destroy the entire planet, God planned to redeem a people for himself from all over the world. And, and he decided to do that through creating a nation called the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel. He selected Abraham, and he, and he said, I'm going to make a great nation from you. And he gave Abraham tremendous promises. He said, I'm going to make from your seed a blessing for all the nations, what ultimately would be Christ. And, and he promised him a land and, and descendants. And, and if you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear that the Jews are the chosen people of God and that God has promised them tremendous blessings. But then when you look at history, you go, well, then what happened? Because when Jesus Christ was born, he came to the Jewish people, and they rejected him. And he was crucified. And when he came out of the ground, he didn't say, go to the Jews. He said, go to all the nations. And what Romans 9 through 11 is helping us to understand what on earth is going on here in regards to God's people, the Jews? And what on earth is going on here in regards to God's people, the Gentiles, many of you who are here today who are a child of God? And so as we've been going through Romans 9 through 11, what we've been learning is this, that God is not done with the Jews. And even though we scratch our heads and go, why are so few Jews believing in Jesus and, and, and following Messiah the Bible makes it very clear it's because of two things. It's because of God's sovereign election and because of Israel's rejection. And so Paul is going back and forth and saying, God has hardened most of the Jews and the Jews will refuse to submit to Messiah. But as we're ending this section this morning in chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, we're going to learn several things as Paul summarizes salvation history. Number one, and this is important. I want you to write this down. Israel has a glorious future. So don't let anyone tell you that God is done dealing with Jews. He's not. There are many Christians who believe in a, in a teaching that's called replacement theology. And that basically says that the nation of Israel, the ethnic people, Jewish people on earth, that God's done with them as a chosen people. That they lost their chance and that the church has replaced them and there's no future. We're going to read, first of all, that Paul's going to tell us, yes, they're hardened. Yes, they fell, but God's not through with them. And so there's three million Jews right now in Israel, and there's a whole bunch more all over the planet. We must not forget that God is not done with them. This doesn't mean that they're all saved right now, but let's start with that first point. Israel has a glorious future. Look in verse 11. I say then, if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along the screen, but don't get lazy and stop bringing your Bible. I look and you come in. 
Forget your Bible? Oh, it's on my phone. Now that I saw you doing your email. All right. I say then, they didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, this wasn't an accident. God didn't go, here I am for you Jews. And they go, we don't want you. And he goes, well, fine then. What should I do now? This was part of his plan. He planned and purposed that the Jews would reject Christ. And it's still their fault. But that was so that the gospel could then go to all the nations. And if you're a believer today, this is part of the reason why. Because God in his mercy has widened the gates of gospel history and said, go into all the world. And then he says, but the purpose of of reaching out to the Gentiles then is to make the Jews jealous. How's it going to make them jealous? Well, as they see gatherings of Gentiles praising and worshiping their God, celebrating that Jesus came to forgive their sins, grasping the hope of the resurrection, they're going, wait a minute. That's our God. Those are our promises. And Paul hopes that some of them would be provoked to a point of saying, as some people who come to Christ, when they meet a real McCoy Christian, they go, I want what they have. And maybe for some of you, that's kind of where you are. You're like, there's something different. I sense a, a spirit here. It's not us, but God is in our midst. Jesus the Lord reigns within us. And if in any way you're a seeker, Know that that's what it is. So Paul says, so, so in light of that, he says in verse 12, if their transgression, in other words, the Jews' failure to receive Christ, is riches for the world, that's us, he says, how much more will their fulfillment be? And this is why I go, how can people say God's done with Jews? This matters. It matters politically. God's not done with the nation of Israel. They're surrounded by nations that hate them. And God had said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And so God says, there's going to be a fulfillment. There's a future for the nation of Israel. What's God going to do with all these Jews in the last days? Paul says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. That's us, right? Most of us. Maybe you're a Jewish believer here or a Jewish seeker. You're very welcome. Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as, if, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul wants to reach as many Gentiles as he can, but he always has a a backdrop, and he goes, because I hope that when Gentiles get saved and Jews see it, that they'll want to get saved. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, how glorious it would be for, for you to invite your Jewish friend to come to the Seder and say, hey, listen, All the Seder does is point to Messiah. He's your Messiah. Wouldn't it be glorious? He's for you. But don't miss this very, very important truth. Israel has a glorious future, so we should pray for the nation of Israel. We should support them. This doesn't mean that they're all saved now. It's just God saying, I'm not done with them. So, okay, point one, Israel has a glorious future. Second thing Paul's going to say is this. Gentiles must humbly beware of the same failure. See, there's been this great switch. I don't know if you, 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 you saw this week, but the Miss Universe representation from, I want to say, 
Puerto Rico, but don't quote me. Please don't correct me. It's, it's a side point. She was so cranky and refused to do interviews that they said, fine, you're no longer going to be our Miss Universe representative. And now she's sorry, and she wants her place back. Meanwhile, they called someone else and said, you who were the second place, now you're, you're going to be the Miss Universe contestant for what just happened. And so what the Bible's teaching us is as Gentiles, we have to understand that it wasn't like we snuck in, but we have to know where we fit in, in God's plan. And that's why I say we must humbly, because three times in the next few verses, Paul's going to say, don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Be, 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 don't be wise in your own estimation. Understand why you're a believer. It's because God is controlling history to, to bring about his purposes. So start in verse 15. He says, for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be from life from the dead? See, there's a future. Now, when he says their rejection, you go, well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean they rejected Jesus, the Jews rejected Jesus, or God has rejected them? Which is it? Is it because God hasn't elected them that, that he has hardened and rejected them, or is it because they rejected Jesus? You ready for the answer? Yes. Yes. It's both. But Paul says, but, but as a result of that, that's reconciliation for the world. That's an opportunity for anybody in the jungle, in the mountains, in the valleys, boys and girls, men and women, black or white, red, yellow, doesn't matter. But then he says, what will their acceptance be from, but life from the dead? In other words, like Ezekiel, as he saw all these dry bones, God can speak a word and the entire nation can turn and believe. If the first piece of dole is holy, and, and here he's, he, he's talking about probably the fathers, the, the patriarchs, then the lump is also, and if the root is holy, then the branches are too. The root being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls the Jewish nation, and they become the, the founders of the people of God. But now notice, he says, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant. See, that's why I said we must be humble about this whole thing. If you're a Gentile and you're a Christian, like me, know your role. Know your place. Kind of like the, the, the Syrophoenician woman. When Jesus first came, he was very deliberate that he was bringing the gospel to the Jews first. In fact, he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, only go to Jewish people of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And a, and a, and a pagan Gentile woman found him with a sick daughter and said, please heal my daughter. Jesus said, hey, I'm sorry, but it's not convenient for me to take the children's bread, the riches of the promises that I've made to the Jews and give them to dogs. And you're like, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. The woman in simple faith said, yeah, but even dogs get crumbs. And Jesus says, daughter, bless you for your faith. And he healed her daughter. But, but know your role. It doesn't mean God loves Gentiles less. It simply means understand why we're part of the people of God. Because God in his purposes in history, because of their rejection, has invited us to come in. Verse 19, you will say to me then, 
In other words, he's saying, so, so Paul, what you're saying is branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Paul goes, that's right. They were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. So he says, don't be conceited, but fear. So again, don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Why? What do I have to be afraid of? I'm in. Verse 21. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You're like, wait, pastor, you've been saying from Romans, if I'm elect and I'm predestined that that God called me and that, that I've been justified and I'm secure, he said I'm already glorified. Absolutely. If you're, if you're a, a born-again believer, you are entirely secure. But the Bible teaches this parallel doctrine that says this. Don't be careless. Don't just think, hey, I'm saved. I'll do whatever I want because I got my hell insurance. Matter of fact, I heard a great illustration of this. One of my students asked me this week. He goes, there's this guy called Philly Jesus. And he has this web page and and on this webpage, he wrote, I'm sinning right now, but Jesus will forgive me. He goes, how do I answer that? And I'm thinking, this guy needs to read this passage. Well, you say, well, well what could happen? Well, look at verse 22. He says, behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, first of all, stop and think about that. Behold, then, the kindness of God. Listen, everybody wants to do that, right? Put that next slide up there of God. There he is. My God is a God of love. Oh, he's so kind. Look at him. He's got a long beard like a grandfather. Children, more candy. Everybody, oh, God is, my God is love. And then, but my God would never put anyone in hell. Put the next slide up. Behold then the severity of God. God's kind and good, but he's not safe. He's not someone to go, oh, just, you know, he loves everybody and he doesn't care about whatever you do. He's just a big bundle of love. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. The Bible says every unbeliever is storing up wrath for themselves in the day of revelation of the wrath of God. And even the display of God's wrath will be to his glory. And so I have to have a balanced view of God. Yes, he's very kind. But I ought not to just go, hey, I got my hell insurance, so it doesn't matter if I trust and obey him. So Paul goes on and he says, in verse 23, they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again. For God is able to graft them in. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree, which, by the way, some commentaries imply here, you know, that's a good illustration of Gentiles, wild. See, because here's the problem. In the world, wild's a good thing. Wild thing. She's a wild thing. He's wild. I'm born to be wild. Listen. If wild means out of control, doing it your way, then you can mark this down. Wild people are going straight to hell. You might as well be as wild as you can and eat, drink, and be merry because the Bible says tomorrow you die. And you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So you young people who want to go out and be wild, 
Lift up your head and think long term. Because, yeah, being wild is fun for a little bit. But I can tell you that the hallways of hell are lined with wild people who didn't repent and thought they, they have a long life ahead of them. So if, if, if you got a wild streak in you, repent. Because God's very kind to humble repenters. But he's severe to those who mock him and turn their back on him or say, ah, well, I don't believe that stuff. So Paul says, how much more shall the natural branches be grafted into the olive tree? So, so, so you go, well, wait a minute. What do you mean God's going to cut me off? Mark this down. If you're a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. It'll never happen. But if you know anybody who turns their back and becomes an apostate and abandons God, one of two things is true. Either they're having a, a temporary lapse of spiritual amnesia. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, if you lack these qualities, you're blind and you've forgotten your purification. Or, mark this down, they were never saved at all. You don't lose your salvation. The Bible says, he that began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. The Bible says, God keeps his own. Very clear. You can't lose your salvation. Those whom he justified, he's already glorified. But when people renounce Christ, they didn't lose their salvation. They weren't saved. 1 John 2 says they went out from us. They were never of us. Because if you're a true believer, you'll continue to believe. John says they would have remained with us. So there's the tension that says, oh, God, thank you for saving me by your grace. Thank you that I'm your elect. But I want to keep trusting you. I don't want to just go, hey, I could do anything I want. So Paul goes, let me give you a history lesson here. I'm going to sum it up. And, and the summary is this. Okay. Here's what God's doing on planet Earth. Verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's something that was not revealed in the past, but has now been made known since the time of Christ. And there are a number of mysteries in the New Testament. I don't care how, you know, people are smart, right? The capacity that people have being made in the image of God is, is remarkable, right? Well, we all know people who have a hard drive way bigger than ours, and we're like, man, how did Newton figure out gravity? And I just don't get it. Like Einstein's fear of relatives. I'm like, what's he so afraid of? I mean, they're, they're nice. Rel so people can figure a lot of stuff out, but mark this down. There are mysteries that no human being would ever understand if God didn't reveal them in the Bible. And thank God he doesn't leave us going, what happened with the Jews? He goes, here's my interpretive binoculars. Here's a mystery that I want you to understand. Here's what's going on. And don't get cocky. Let's keep reading verse 26. A partial hardened has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? God's going, let me interpret history for you. Ever since they rejected my Messiah, which is part of my purpose, I have set them aside. I'm calling a remnant. I'm not done with them. There's elect that I'm still bringing to myself. But you're not going to see millions of Jews getting saved throughout the gospel ages. And the reason for it is right now, God's bringing in the fullness of Gentiles. And right now on planet Earth, there's about 7 billion people. And all over this planet, God is sending people with the gospel. And that thrills my heart. I can't stand it. That excites me. To think that one day, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and people from every tribe 
and tongue and people and nation will worship together at the foot of the cross and will say, you are worthy. To you be power and glory. You were slain and you purchased us for God. And that's such a cool thought because God has already marked out and selected every single person that will be saved. And one of these fellows, this is really cool, I was thinking about this. Who will be the last Gentile to get saved? Congratulations! You are the final Gentile to come to Christ. Talk about the publisher's clearing house. But you can mark this down. When the last Gentile that God calls to himself gets saved, then God's going to finish what he started with Israel. He says, then when that's done, all Israel will be saved. Now, we got we to make sure we understand what this means. Number one, some people have falsely understood this to mean that means God's going to save all the Jews who ever lived from Abraham on. That's not what he's saying. There's no retro gospel. There are many Jews in hell, just like there are many Gentiles. And when he says all Israel will be saved, he doesn't mean every single Jew that's on the planet at the return of Christ. There will be a massive conversion of Jews so that it would be safe to say the entire nation has turned to Christ. And you're going, are you serious? Humanly speaking, that's impossible. And I couldn't agree more. Just drop out the word humanly speaking and add the word divinely speaking. It's not just probable. It's definite. How could this happen? How could the entire nation change their mind? Here's how. Zechariah chapter 11, God says, In the last days I will pour out a spirit of supplication upon the house of David. And they will look on him whom they've pierced. And they will mourn for him. God's going to move the hearts of Jews all over this world. And they're suddenly going to change their mind and say, He is the Messiah. We're the ones who killed him. And whoa, what a blessed people they will be who are alive when that happens. And thus all Israel will be saved. And then Paul quotes several Old Testament passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah to remind that the deliverer, that's Jesus, will come from Zion, not Zion on earth, the heavenly Zion. Jesus will come from heaven. And listen, he could come today, and he'll either come to deliver you or to destroy you. It's your choice. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is his covenant that he made with them. He will take away their sins. And so, as Gentiles, we go, okay, so, God, thank you for your mercy to me. Thank you that I'm in. I want to keep trusting you, and I want to pray for the Jews, and I want to evangelize Jewish people, and I want to remember where I fit in here. So the next thing Paul's going to tell us is this. Israel has a glorious future. Gentiles must humbly beware of failure. Third thing is this. He says, God's promises are irrevocable, and his display of mercy to Jews and Gentiles is remarkable. You're like, you said that too fast. Okay, I'll slow it down. God's promises are irrevocable. He made promises to the Jews. Mom, you promised we could go to, to Sesame Place. I know, I changed my mind. Never happened with God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man, he says, that I should lie, nor a son of man that I should repent. Have I spoken and won't I do it? God never breaks his promises. His promises are irrevocable. And his mercy to Jews and Gentiles is remarkable. Let's read this. Because, because remember, the Roman church was, was, was primarily Gentiles. There weren't a whole lot of Jews in the church. That's because the emperor had expelled all the Jews from, from Rome for five years. 
So in these little house churches, maybe there's a Jew here and a Jew there. It doesn't seem like there's a massive amount of Jewish Christians. So Paul says, so here's how I want you to view the Jewish Christians. And here's how I want you to view Jewish non-Christians. And somebody need to stop it. You're like, yeah, the stingy Jews, they're always trying to Jew me out of a couple bucks. and They have all the money. Stop it. But here's what God says about how we should view Jews. It says in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. You're like, I should view them as enemies? No. See, in Paul's day, before the Romans ever persecuted Christians, the primary persecution that went against the church was from the Jews, against their fellow countrymen. In fact, Paul spoke of this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, the Jews have filled up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to the utmost because of their persecution. So he says, on the one hand, the Jews were hating their fellow brethren, Jews who were coming to Christ, and they mocked the Gentiles. But he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, from God's election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For every, so every time you see a Jewish boy with his yarmulke, every time you, you drive past and you can't drive very far without passing a synagogue, our hearts should, should pray for them and we should grieve for them and we should love them and we should understand that God's promises to them are irreversible and what he promised these people, he's going to do for them. But by the way, can you take any comfort from that? God's promises are irrevocable. Do you realize that that's one of Satan's chief goals in your life is to undermine your confidence in God's promises? He promises that he's good. Well, he doesn't seem good. People here who have lost a loved one are tempted and tested to question God's goodness. And all of us go through trials and, and we say, God, you promised if I train up a child in the way he should go, he won't, well, you didn't keep your promise. God, you promised to supply all my needs. You didn't keep your promise. You promised by your stripes we'll be healed. You didn't keep your promise. You said if I call on the name, I'll be saved, and I call on the name of the Lord, and I don't feel saved. You didn't keep your promise. God always keeps his promises. Please say amen to that. And if your faith is faltering and you're troubled and your tender soul is weak, lash yourself to the cross and believe every promise of God because it's yes and amen in Jesus. Everything he promised. What can I say to the Abram family? I can tell them this promise from God that the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And the dead in Christ, Jesse, will come out of the grave. Bill will come out of the grave. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air and we'll meet the Lord and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm so thankful for God's promises. Learn them, love them, sing of them, recite them. Use them to deflect Satan's shields. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. Let the world and Satan assail us with their lies and garbage, and we cling to God's promises. God keeps his word. His promises are irrevocable, but his mercy is remarkable. Look at verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy. So Paul goes, remember you Gentiles, you were disobedient and God showed you mercy. He says, verse 30, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so that these also, the Jews who are now disobedient, 
that because of the mercy shown to you, they may be shown mercy. If God didn't interpret history, I'd go, God, what are you doing? Are the Jews in or out? You're going to do what you said or are you going to not do what you said? He goes, no, I got, listen, let me tell you what I'm doing. Don't presume on me. I love to display mercy. Let me say that again. God loves to display mercy. He's full of mercy. He's not up there wanting to smack you down. If you're a child of God, his mercy toward you is unspeakable. He knows our failures, our frame that we're dust. Speak the gospel to yourself again and again. But notice verse 32. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. No one can presume on his mercy. Well, he owes me mercy because I'm his elect. He doesn't owe us anything but the pit. And so I praise the Lord that a dopey young teenager at the age of 17 in, in South Jersey, someone says, hey, come to church and read the Gospel of John. And my eyes are open and I, and I, and I read of, of the Gospel that if I come to Jesus, that he will forgive me. And all my days, I want to sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. And I want to rejoice that every morning when I get up, his mercy is new. You say amen to that. Aren't you glad about that? You're like, I failed you again, God. Forgive me. My mercy is fresh and new every morning. So you didn't know you are going to get a history lesson today, but Paul said, let me give you a, a heavenly history lesson. And then he says, now here's the application. The final part, this is the best part. Paul's stunned by this. He busts out in a doxology. Don't ever let anybody tell you theology is dry. Theology leads to doxology. You and I ought to be praising God for this. In, in, in slang, we'd say, who'd have thunk it? Who'd have ever thunk he would do it this way? And Paul says, he says, <clears throat> let's go to the, to, oh, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Here's your hard drive, a little tandy radio shack. Here's God's hard drive. Don't even try to imagine it. It's unspeakably wide. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways and the heavens are above the earth. But what he's doing on this planet is all part of his remarkable display of his wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments. Don't dare say, I knew God was going to do that. Matter of fact, I advised him. I said, you, you might want to do this with the Jews. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? How unfathomable his ways. You lose a loved one. Why? Next time somebody tries to answer, just say, please. How unfathomable his ways. We don't know why. The ways of God are unfathomable. But don't let anybody tell you you can't ask why. People say, it's not ours to ask why. Jesus hung on the cross and he said, why? It's okay to ask why, but he doesn't owe us an answer. And he may never answer why in this life. But he says, trust me. So Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Listen, when you get to heaven and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, don't dare say, I bought myself a place. Where's my spot that I earned, God? You'll be expelled immediately. We bring nothing to the judgment except a plea for mercy. And many of you may have been raised in a, in a Protestant tradition that said you work, work for your salvation or in a Catholic tradition that said you got, you got to earn grace from God. Salvation is entirely a gift of his mercy and you receive it freely. Nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross. 
We don't give anything to God. He doesn't owe us anything. It's a free gift. Come to Jesus. But then Paul says, let me summarize this whole thing. And this is the final point. God's purposes in salvation history call for all creation to give him glory. We can't just go, that was nice. We've got to burst out and praise to God that everything on the macro level with Jews and Gentiles is part of his purpose and everything on the micro level, cancer and job loss and death and depression and family problems, it's all part of his purposes. Because notice what Paul says, from him, he's the source, he's the creator. Through him, he's the means by which we exist. He keeps my heart beating. And when he says, this is your last day, school's over for me. And to him, he's the goal, are all things. To him be the glory. Forever. Amen. Remember when people say it's not about you? I agree with that, but we ought to add, but it is about him. Now you go, well, what's that have to do with me? Read that last line. To him are all things. You got one purpose down here on this planet, to bring glory to God. And you can do it in one of two ways. He will be glorified in your judgment, or he will be glorified in his display of mercy to you. And he gives you that choice. So if you've been messing around or God's on the back burner, you need to flee to him and repent. Don't just say, oh, I said the magic prayer that got me saved. No, there's no magic prayer. You turn to him and you, and you trust him and, and you ask him to change your heart and forgive you and he will accept you. And then, now listen, here's the application. Then you live every day for his glory. You're like, well, well I did that. I sang to him on Sunday. No. That's, that's silly. That's one moment of 168 hours in the week. The Bible says whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So when you go home, you glorify him by how you treat people, by what you do with your money, by what you say. By, and listen, I'm not up here going, I graduated from the school of glory. I'm a fellow learner. There's a lot of stuff that I don't give him glory. And maybe you're living an immoral lifestyle. And Paul says, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Glorify God with your body. What a privilege that I could use these two hands and these two feet and these eyes and this body to glorify God, to pray and love people and preach Christ and, and try to give and serve the Lord and do things to make him look good. That's a joyful way to live. And the more you do that, the more you'll find that, wow, this is what life is really about, living for the glory of Jesus. Everything else is just a false lie. It's a waste of time. But I said to Benjamin, I said, Benjamin, we cannot leave without singing. How can we not give him the glory? And so, so I said, what song should we sing? To God be the glory. It's a hymn. Years ago, we used to have these little, we called them hymns, right? In these little books, you know. To God, now listen to the words. Great things he has done. Great things he has taught us. Great things he has done. He just taught us great things. And if you want to come to Christ, talk to us. Talk to somebody here. If you've been away from the Lord, 
Get back with him. If you're struggling, you know your role. Trust him. Surrender to him. Receive his mercy. And let's continue to pray. Hey, we got Good Friday coming and Hallelujah Sunday. Pray and let's pack this place out. We'll hang them from the rafters. Not hang them, but (laughs) pray that people come to Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles. God, give us Bucks County for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that we can respond to it. Amen. Let's stand together.